Hi, welcome to the Founders Journey Podcast. I'm Greg Moran uh, with my co-host Peter Dean. Good to uh, good to see you again, Peter. Good to see you. Um, I'm really excited about having Martin on. I told you before, this is the only one I've been nervous about because, uh, you know, he's he's kind of a hero to me in a way. So in upstate. <laughs> Well, it's uh, before we'll we'll, uh, we'll introduce our guest here in a second. Just as a reminder, Founders Journey podcast is about coaching and actionable tips for startup founders or those who are starting to embark on the journey. And it's really about learning uh, for founders from founders. And uh, and as Peter gave the the quick uh, his quick summary here, we we have probably one of the best founders in the world today with us on the on the call, and uh, and certainly an honor to. To have him here, and um, Martin Babinick is our guest. Martin has been a um, somebody I've been called proud to uh, have been proud to call a friend for probably I don't know Martin two decades now, something something like that. We were both uh, I think we were both six I think twenty years ago when when uh, <laughs> when we met or something like that. But uh, Martin is uh, Martin is founder of Trinet. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about Trinet today and Martin's journey there, and uh, and taking that company from a concept to um, to the pinnacle of entrepreneurship as a uh, traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, Martin was uh, was the leader of that journey for many many years along the way. He's also the author of More Good Jobs. Um, and uh, founder of Upstate Van. I'm trying to get through all these, and let's see if I can do this uh, in a minute here because there's so many things on Martin's, <laughs> on Martin's resume. But founder of Upstate Venture Connect, which is a community in Upstate New York to really foster investment going into uh, into that Upstate New York community. Um, early stage investor with uh, Up with um, Up Ventures Capital, and Martin was an investor in a couple of my uh, businesses along the way. Um, and, uh, and a board member with us, and then uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about this because we can't resist. Then he went out and founded a nonpartisan political organization looking to change the direction of New York State. Uh, decided that um, getting involved in politics was something he wanted to spend time on. Which Martin and I have had <laughs> endless conversations about this one, uh, but that that's called uh, Unite New York, and it's a fascinating story about really trying to change the way that um, the way that politics are working in New York. Um, when nobody else would. So Martin, uh, couldn't be more happy to uh, to welcome you to the show today. Well, thanks, Greg. I certainly would never put myself in the category of the world's best entrepreneurs, but I'm fortunate <laughs> to have been able to stand on the shoulders of some giants, some really great entrepreneurs along the way. So I'm a very lucky guy. Absolutely. Well, and uh, and, and you've repaid that in spades to uh, to, to so many of us as we've started our, uh, our journeys as well. So I want to start out at the beginning here, Martin. What what led you, you know, we had a, we had a funny conversation about this yesterday in our, in the pre-interview where you, you said you were hopelessly employable. What, what led you to, <laughs> to start a business um, in the first place? What, what kind of made you say, Hey, I want to go down this journey as a founder myself. Yeah. To kind of go back at the beginning, realize that right after college, uh, as I graduated with a degree in business and a passion for being in human resources, but at the time, nobody was hiring for entry-level HR positions out of college uh, that were, especially in my case, coming from a school no one ever heard of before. So I had difficulty and ended up finally getting an entry-level HR job with Navy Exchanges, which operates the post exchanges or retail stores for the Navy. And at the time, I thought oh, I'd do this for a few years and get on the corporate track. 
it's a long story, but it ended up playing out a lot longer and in ways that I never envisioned because I was with that organization for 11 years, working mostly outside the U.S., both uh, Japan and Southern Italy, two places that would be opposite, polar opposites. And by the time I got back to the U.S., I was unemployable because I had worked for the government for too long and no one <laughs> valued what I had learned and what I could possibly do. And that put me on this path to consider, all right, if no one's valuing what I'm capable of, I might as well take control of it. And I began that process of saying, let me look around for entrepreneurial opportunities. So that led you, you, you said that you had this passion for HR and that led you into Trinet, but how, how did how did Trinet, because the, the story of Trinet is just, I mean, it's probably 10 podcasts in itself in terms of what that what that path looked like. But you know, you had this passion for it and, and you started this this little business called Trinet. What was the thinking behind that? Where were you where where did you expect that that road to lead you? All right. So recognize that this was a long time ago. I mean, back in the Stone Age, we're talking late 1980s. And, and to understand what does Trinet do, which is essentially the same mission that we were on back in the late 80s. Trinet today is considered within the industry of the professional employer organizations or PEO industry. When we started, there was no such thing as an industry, all right? So yes, we were among those, we weren't the first, but we were among those that created this concept at the time of, hey, if you aggregate a bunch of small businesses into one group and then use the economies of scale of that larger group, you could do things like buy benefits, buy workers' compensation, manage the risk of being an employer, take care of compliance, removing that burden from the small business owner's shoulders, and actually providing a more compliant and robust HR service than what a small business can do on their own. What's not to like? But I'll tell you, in the late, teen, late 1980s, people were not at all ready to embrace that concept. And so it was uh, when I first got in, there was maybe a half dozen companies around the U.S. that were experimenting with this. And yet there were some forward-looking people that said, hey, this could work. And for me, as soon as I stumbled across it, it was a great fit. Because I'm, I'm one that looks at the longer term. I make a lot of my decisions based on macroeconomics and trends and feel that the best way to be a successful entrepreneur is to find trends that you can put wind to your back so that you, as trends unfold, you're building something that could be more valuable a few years from now than maybe what's recognized by other people today. So I looked at the trends and the whole thing made sense to me including the belief that the employment market would shift from what was then very much oriented towards big companies and the best talent all wanted to work for big companies. I believe that would shift and the pendulum would start swinging towards earlier stage companies. And I bought into that for a lot of reasons. So I was very fortunate to have gotten in at the time when it's a plus and a minus because we had to create it. And I understood HR delivery, did not know anything about sales and marketing. It was a really tough slog, but I got a lot of good help 
from some of those forward-looking people in the beginning that truly did make a big difference in building Trinet from there on. I want to I want to get to those people that you're referring to in just in just one second. Um, but I, just to stay on this point for just a minute, when you started Trinet, did you I, did, was your goal to hey I'm going to build what one day will become a public company? Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it, my goal, like most entrepreneurs, I saw a problem. The problem was small businesses that need help in managing all the risks and headaches of being an employer. I'm an HR guy. I understood that. I understood a lot about human resource information systems compared to other peers at the time. So I had the right knowledge set on the delivery side. I believed in the macroeconomics. And when I started Trinet, the goal was just to be a small business. And what I didn't realize then, even though I could deliver the service, the business is one that is based on an economies of scale model, meaning you have to build the scale before you've really got the value proposition that the business is about. Yeah. So as a rookie entrepreneur, I didn't understand that. I thought I was building a small business because I knew how to do this HR stuff. But yet yeah. the market was not ready to embrace it. The market, when I go out and talk to people and say, well, you should be a customer of Trinet, they'd say, all right, well, how many customers you got now? Well, you'll be the first, all right? It's like, <laughs> that's not an easy thing to sell, all right? Yeah. And, and so remember that to deliver the value, you got to have volume. Benefit is the scale, right? Yes. And so- yeah. When you begin with this chicken and egg scenario, it's hard for not just a PEO, but a lot of other businesses as well. But in the PEO in particular, where your economies of scale have to have a certain amount just to deliver a basic benefits package and get insurance companies to sign off on it, where they were reticent about there being issues. And the government didn't even recognize that there was such a thing as a PEO. So then we're talking about operating on the fringes of what the regulatory environment was. There were all these risks that were very hard to navigate in the early stages. And so in retrospect, as I've written about in Mortgage Jobs, I'd be, I didn't understand it then, but in retrospect, I can look back now and say, I thought I was building a small business, but in reality, it was a startup because we were yep. building something based on an innovation that was not yet understood or embraced in the marketplace, number one. And the second element is we're building something that has the potential to go far beyond the local community. So even though the initial ambition was small business, for a business like this, it could not be limited to just a local community for it to work because yep. you have to have enough scale. It's gotta be a broader market. So those are the two factors when, when I think about the difference between a small business and something that would I would call an innovation economy company that could be investor-backed, you want to have something based on an innovation that has scalability and can go outside a local community. And I was a startup that didn't know it. Yeah. that You know, it's, it's so funny. I, I think, and Peter and I have talked about this before too, I think that it's... You see this over and over again, right? Where somebody starts something because they identify this problem, which you did, right? But they've identified a problem 
as you mentioned, that had massive macroeconomic tailwinds behind it, right? And I think, yes. you know, and that it, it's amazing. You know, when I when I talk to founders myself, I mean, it's one of the things that you've taught me over the years is, you know, to and now as an investor to really be looking for those macroeconomics, right? And because there's, you know, quite frankly, there's an easy way to do this and a hard way to do it. it I shouldn't say it's an easy way. There's an easier way to do it. And there's a really hard way to do it. And when you're when you're trying to build something into a headwind, it's extraordinarily difficult, if not nearly impossible, right? And you know, but you look at these businesses like you do with Trinet, that you identified the problem, but that tailwind was just pushing the business far bigger than what you even imagined <laughs> that that it would be, right? Right. But there is this question of timing because mm -hmm. it's possible, even though the macroeconomic forces are going to start blowing you are still subject to market adoption headwinds yeah. instead of tailwinds. Yep. So yeah. in the early years, we're talking, you know, through the early 90s, um, we started in uh, 1988. And I would say by, by the time we got to 92, 93, then we, we started to really get the lift. Yeah. But it was because in our particular case, we got over those headwinds of the concern of adoption, because when you're trying to sell a service that people don't understand, it's based on an innovation where there's yeah. risk to the buyer because the buyer feels, hey, if this startup doesn't make it, I could be out a lot of money, all right? mm -hmm. a lot. Because remember, we're the fiduciary for payroll. There's yeah. risk to the buyer. And so the market wasn't ready to adopt it. And you can have those headwinds. And so in that scenario, what we did was make the decision to concentrate on a vertical market, which, by the way, is counterintuitive because you're trying to build a business on scale. You need scale. It's like oxygen. And instead, you're trying to say, you know, we're going to narrow the focus. And, and I'll be frank in saying it was what saved us from the, our first near-death experience by, get, by going at vertical focus. But it's counterintuitive when you're trying to build a scale business. But by doing so, we built community because we targeted a vertical where we knew there were people talking with each other. And when we delivered successfully on the expectations that we were setting, then we got referral business, which helped us scale up through the headwinds of resistance on market adoption. Yeah. This, this is a theme that we've had and heard multiple <laughs> times, especially at a certain scale to be, to narrow focus that opens market opportunity for you. It's scary to do. Um, and when that happens, as uh, even when I met you 10 years ago and said, I'm doing this thing called Render Tribe, you said to me, just do it for SaaS software companies. Now it took me a while to kind of get myself to do that. <laughs> But once that happened, <laughs> that, Martin, once that advice, my head, that once, advice and found in five years of getting beat up, it may, it convinced them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but now I, I can't control, like there's so much growth opportunity yeah. by just being so narrow and focused. It's like, we're swamping, like yeah. it's swamping the boat. And, but it's scary as someone that's like at the helm saying, well, this, this opportunity came in, but it doesn't fit our ideal customer profile today. I, I know I can help them. Do I do it? And when you do, we just keep stumbling and stumbling. And then, but when you have that focus, 
the referrals, the, you know, your, your street cred in that space goes way up and your ability to close goes way up. And it's an amazing thing to learn for sure. Yeah. It is scary to do, but it is. So Martin, you, you know, you've been uh, just changing gears a little bit here. You, you've been, you know, a enormously dedicated mentor to, to me, to Peter, but not only to the two of us, to just so many no. other founders that are out there and, um, you know, on a, on a local level, on a national level, and and now on a global level with a lot of the initiatives that you've got in place, who were the mentors that you had? And what, you know, if you kind of reflect back on the things that really stand out to you, what did, what were the lessons that they taught you that you, you know, have really tried to instill in others along the way? So I have been the beneficiary of a lot of mentoring help over the years. Uh, it would take me the rest of the podcast to even talk about the ones that were significant, but I'll give you two yeah. uh, as just examples that had a huge amount of impact. And the first was T. Joe Willie, a guy that if I were to give credit for creating the PEO industry, it would be T. Joe Willie. All right. I was one of the early adopters and saying, this is a business that can be built. He had already started one. And more than that, uh, he was so forward-looking, he actually created a software platform for operating his PEO and opened and made it available on a licensing basis for other PEOs to adopt. And I was one of the few that he actually let license it that was a startup because they got into the thing of, we will never license this to startup PEOs, but he made an exception for me. And um, you know, he became such a mentor, and not only because of the you know relationship we had from my being a customer of his uh, software platform, but also the understanding about the industry and the challenges and navigating through that that made all the difference in getting our um, startup off the runway during challenging times. And then um, a little bit later than that would be. Uh, I had the good fortune as part of my entrepreneurial development, and I really have gone out of my way and, and continue to do so, to learn best practices and learn from others that are more experienced than me. And uh, among those, as part of what was uh, then called the Birthing of Giants program within Entrepreneurs Organization, I had the good fortune to meet and get to know Jack Stack, who people may have heard of the Great Game of Business, a book that he wrote, uh, which you could also find out information at greatgame.com. And, and Jack um, had a lot to do with bringing alive the notion of how you get your team members to not just think like an owner, but engage in a fashion where the whole company acts it with an ownership mentality. And, and that's really what the philosophy of the great game of business is about. And they've taken that to uh, be now a business in itself, uh, as I mentioned. So those two people would be both embodying qualities that I value, including they give first without asking for something in return. It's like, I didn't have really that much to offer. But they were doing it not just for me, but for a lot of other people as well. And they believed in the bigger picture of what was possible and really going after really hard things, all right? Um, and wanting to help the next generation. 
and giving generously of themselves to do so. And those are qualities that I still try hard to measure up to. Um, T. Joe, unfortunately, passed away two years ago. I, I miss him dearly. Um, but my relationship with him was solid all those years. And I continue to say Jack Stack is one of my best friends. Well, I have to say that you've already done that. And we're trying to live up to your new standard for us to give back. So one of the reasons we're doing this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's funny, Jack. Um, I got the chance to know Jack a little bit uh, going through the Birthing a Giants program. Um a number of years ago and uh, as well. And the impact that he had, I think, uh, you know, continues to have on so, on so many is, uh, you know, so many founders, especially there was a, there was sort of a, a, a group, I think that are kind of all in the, probably in their, you know, forties to fifties right now, as the great game of business was, you know, became incredibly popular <clears throat> probably about 20 years ago. Um, you know, Jack was just always out there and, um, you know, always made himself available. So, uh, so pretty, pretty extraordinary, pretty extraordinary person. You know, you, uh, so you once told me early on at, uh, in the early days of checked.com, which became outmatch, which is now Harvard. So it's gone through a number of iterations as these, as these businesses do to, um, you know, to make sure you enjoy the good days because on the entrepreneurial journey, because there's a there's always a bad day around the corner, right? It's just the nature of what we do. Can you, you know, try out was not a straight line, and um, you know there were really dark days. Can you talk about those a little bit, and you know how you really navigated that, you know, that road because it was not, you know, it's it's really easy to look back on, you know, this overnight success that went public and. All these great things. This was an overnight success that was what thirty years in the making, <laughs> you yeah. know. And yeah. um, you know, can you talk talk a little bit about those dark days and how, how did you kind of survive them? Um, you know, personally, and then obviously, you know, getting the business through them. I would posit, as I've met a lot of entrepreneurs, thousands of entrepreneurs, and for every major success story, entrepreneurs will have their near death experiences. So we think everything goes up and to the right, but I tell you, find me an entrepreneur that hasn't had a near-death experience, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you that person is not telling you the truth. Okay, so we've had our share. One of them was um, uh, through the mid '90s. We started to get um, traction as a result of our concentration in emerging tech as our vertical market focus. And um, we went, we had all these relationships on St. Hill Road. So we could go into venture capital offices and, and say, you know, we're trying to raise money. We got a great track record. We're growing like crazy. We're supporting your portfolio companies. And the VCs would say, great, you know, we love trying to keep doing what you're doing, but we can't invest in you because you're a service business. And we invest in technology companies. This was CIRA 94, all right? Obviously, that's changed, and some of those VCs now regret that, but it led to our eventually getting financing with a corporate investor um, in the staffing industry, which uh, the PEO industry was somewhat aligned with, and this was a foreign company who took us under their wing and made us part of their portfolio. But the deal was one in which we had milestones, so we sold a controlling stake for a um, 
um, a, a rich valuation by industry standards, all right, like the highest per worksite employee valuation paid in the industry. So we were proud of that. And we, we said, all right, we think this is a really high quality investor to put hitch our wagon to. And I have no regrets. It was absolutely the right thing to do. But the lesson that happened was uh, sparked by the dark days after we closed the deal, ramped up, started hiring all these people because now we had money in the bank. Lo and behold, end of the year, we had lost three of our five largest customers and we could no longer meet the milestones we just agreed to. And so we couldn't get the next round of financing. So here I'm the entrepreneur now having to say to this team that I built all this excitement for, and we got all these new faces that we spent time training. It's like, what are we going to do? We go to the board and say, you know, we want to get some renegotiation of the milestones. And they held our feet to the fire and said, it doesn't work that way. This is what you agreed to. You have to cut your overhead. And we had to turn around and lay off about 20% of the company. And as an entrepreneur, this is the hardest thing ever for entrepreneurs to do. <laughs> oh, my <right>? God. <clears throat> the worst. Sweating payroll and laying people yeah. off. Oh. And so, so the, um, you know, the lesson there was it is about making sure 100% sure you're taking money from outside investors. It's about being 100% certain you can meet the expectations you're setting. I have a post on my blog. Uh, the blog is at babinick.com. It's called Perils of a Rich Valuation. It goes into more detail on that. And uh, that was a dark day that we got through, but only because we had some great investors that did the right thing as hard as it was for me as an entrepreneur at the time. The second um, thing I'll bring up along the same lines was throughout the 95 to 2000 era, we were riding the dot-com wave. It was the incredible thing. It's those people that can't remember what dot-com was like. Remember, <laughs> we're, we're talking going from no internet to it's like, this is, you just put dot-com after your company name and you're suddenly adding zeros to your valuation, all right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we were like, Trinet was the um, provider of pickaxes, shovels, and blue jeans to the gold miners. You were right? like Cisco. Yeah. Servers <laughs> so, and people. So That's what we you were, needed. We were, we were on fire, all right? It was like unbelievable. And meanwhile, the same investor that held our feet to the fire and, and wouldn't give us the relief on the milestones, that investor was saying, we got too much concentration risk, too much concentration risk, too much, kept repeating it, all right? So we filed to go public on March 2nd, 2000, the absolute height of the dot-com era. What happens? It didn't work out, all right? Because it's a long story worth another future podcast on what happened between March of 2000 and October of 2000 when we went on the roadshow. But the world changed over that time period. And I'm one of the few that has been through the entire IPO process twice <laughs> with the same company. <laughs> right? so, that, I don't know. Nice. Is that a badge of honor? Or I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's probably it's a badge of shame. Right? <laughs> but I will tell you, I'm thankful we didn't go public as hard as it was because the dark day, if you can imagine, we had everybody hyped up. All right. Everybody on the team was getting their calculators out. Everybody on the team had options. 
Everybody was really in the money as we start that IPO process. And then not only do we abort, but from October of 2020 for the next year to 18 months, we're going down as rapidly as we used to go up. This was even more painful than the 1995 experience and missing those milestones. I would not want to wish that on anyone. All right. Yeah. But that which does not kill you will make you stronger. And there were a lot of lessons learned on that. If someone visits my blog and uh, just puts it in the search box, uh, wartime leadership, you'll (laughs) read several posts, uh, which I wrote as COVID started because Throughout our portfolio, Up Ventures Capital portfolio, you know, we're trying to help our companies and those in upstate New York that we help through the nonprofit Upstate Venture Connect navigate through the very big challenges as COVID started. And, and I started to reflect on these lessons of conversion from dot-com growth and excitement and abundance to dot-bomb, where the bottom dropped right out. And the world was completely different. So it was a nuclear winner. So wartime leadership will be the lessons learned that can help build a stronger company. How many parallels yeah. do you think, Martin, um, <clears throat> there are today? I know this is something that you've you've taught me over the years, and, and you just referenced the blog post on valuation. And you know, there are so many, there are so many companies going out today and raising at just obscenely high valuations, right? But the ability to then live into grow into that valuation and reach those milestones is something that I think it's guesswork, right? I mean, do you, do you see a lot of parallels between what's happening today and um, what was happening at that point during the uh, you know sort of where you were and then during the dot com stage? Well. I would say the um, the amount of irrational exuberance, which was coined um, by the chairman of the Fed during yep. the dot com era, uh, that the amount of irrational exuberance then is greater than what we have today. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, could things agree. be a little bit inflated? Uh, yes, and certainly there are going to be some private equity investors are going to lose money on some of those valuations. Um, But my own sense in looking at not only investments we make in UpVentures Capital, but working a lot with um, VCs and private equity firms that we have as partners, um, that there is, the pendulum is starting to swing back towards um, essentially the public markets even looking at things like profitability, all right, or visibility to profitability yep. in ways that is much healthier. And the, you know, the aperture is shrinking a little bit for companies to go out there without a very strong foundation to, yeah. to become public companies. Yeah, I yeah. think that's that's eroded over time where, you know, you could go with a lot of less ARR on your books and raise more money, but now you need more ARR to get that same amount of uh, funding. Well, ARR's growth for sure will provide funding. But as we think about the public company analogies, because remember a lot of your private company valuations are at least put into this lens of how would such a company be valued in the public market? And then they discount it backwards, Yep. right? Mm -hmm. 
And so when public company valuations shrink for comparable companies, even though the public company might be much larger than the private company and probably more profitable, what happens in the public market becomes a proxy for yep. influences down in private company valuation. Yep. And what you're seeing now is a correction of those valuations in the public market. Look what happened to Netflix. Just right. minus 35% of their market cap disappeared in one day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, in Netflix, you know, example, I think it, and I think, you know, it's a it's an interesting one, right? Because I mean, they they have literally at least I'm sure they're going to come up with something. But as of today, they have literally run out of room to grow. I mean, they have, they have owned, they own almost, you know, the huge percentage of, of households in the, uh, in the world today. Right. And that's, that's something, you know, I think you're, you know, in some of these, some of these really large public companies, you start to see more and more of that, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it, it is really interesting when you start to think about, and this is something we talk to founders a lot about, it's just that that combination of a reasonable valuation today, going out, meeting your milestones, meeting expectations and doing it consistently over and over and over today, like you used to, you know, you've talked about so many times of always being ready for institutional due diligence. That's the essence of institutional due diligence, right? Can you do it? Can you do it consistently? And if you can show that, you will re, you'll be rewarded with that valuation down the line. You don't have to grab every nickel of valuation on the table today because it can cost you dearly. So, uh, so Greg, why don't you bring that back to the kind of fun, fundamental that we talked about yesterday about always thinking like a public company's financials that you guys talked about yesterday. I think it's a super important point. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, at any size, at any size. Yeah, Martin. I mean, if you could, if you could just spend a minute on that, I, I would. You know, I, this is something that you just drilled into me as a board member in the early days of the company when we had like, and I was saying to you yesterday, we had. I don't think we had ten employees. I'm not even sure we had five employees. And your mantra at every board meeting was always, "We have to be ready for institutional due diligence at all times." And that was a lesson. I, I honestly, it took me a few years to really understand what you were talking about. Talk about that a little bit, because I think it's an enormously powerful thing for an early stage founder to have that mindset. So, Greg, I would argue that that helped accelerate your ability to grow. There's to no, be, there's no yeah. doubt about it. No yeah. doubt about it. So let me preface that by pointing out that sometimes entrepreneurs think that the goal should be to create a public company. And I will push back on that yeah. and say that the goal should be to be building a great company. But to do so on a public company model, all right? Exactly. All right. And, and then in my answering your question, that statement will make more sense, all right? Because if you build a great company, and specifically a company that can be predictable in its growth of both revenue and profits, when you can become predictable in that, consistently predictable, that's how your company gets to be worth more money, whether it's public or private. So if you meet that test of being predictable, you will have more options to consider. And so don't focus on our goal is to be a public company. Wrong goal would be my argument. It's like become predictable, consistently grow, be consistently profitable, and the world will present you many options. And then you can pick and choose which option makes sense. 
So, and, oh, I'm sorry, Martin, continue. So what we did, I mean, we got into this public company mindset because of that investor that I said at the beginning with, we sold a controlling stake to this public staffing company from the UK. And they are the ones that forced us to understand how does a public market work? Because I didn't know that when we started, all right? But now we're rolling our numbers up to a public company. We had to have quarterly for annual forecasts and quarterly forecasts. We didn't meet the numbers, guess what? We were hammered, all right? And we developed the systems, the processes, and most importantly, the management team commitment, the will to do so across the company. And then embracing the principles of the great game of business, which includes open book management and transparency, we didn't keep that limited to the management team, but we would have our regular routine around how do we get everybody in the company to understand these very important things? Not just what do we want the P&L to look like, but even explain the balance sheet, because oftentimes companies don't take enough time to explain things like there's a difference between cash and profit, all right? Yes. As well as the operating metrics, because most people can relate a little bit better to internal operating metrics than they can to the financial statements. But you have to have the line of sight from the operating metrics to the financial statements. Those were all things that we did. And so we built Trinet once we started that relationship with that public company. From there on after, it was build it on a public company model not only with those things that I just mentioned, but no related party transactions, all right? Because everything we do is for the benefit of shareholders, all the shareholders, we are fiduciaries for the shareholders and a high degree of transparency that should we have a need for another round of financing, we will be ready, which is what gets back to your original question of be ready for institutional level diligence. And with each step up in the uh, stack, meaning you go from series A to series B to series C and so forth, every step up becomes a higher level of diligence. What you need for institutional yep. diligence at A is very different than B or C and beyond, all right? The higher up you go, the bigger the hurdle. So oftentimes entrepreneurs wait too long to even begin that journey because they, yep. they say, this is a distraction. I'm trying to grow revenue. I'm trying to grow profitability. I don't have time to, you know, think about an audit or, you know, have a, a board of directors with some independent directors who might help me. I, you know, I, I got to grow the business here. And it's like, you want to be ready for serious investment? These are things that good companies are ready for before they need it because it takes time to build. Well, I'll tell you, you know, the thing, the the impact that that philosophy had on my business, which you were a board member of, and for many years, and a and a early early stage investor uh, in, you know, for 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 the entire life of the business, um, what that mindset did, what it was it enabled us. I remember Martin the conversation with you in the early days of Check.com. We had a a larger strategic buyer that was knocking at our door repeatedly, who was about three or four times our size. 
and kept saying, hey, you know, we want to acquire you guys, we want to acquire you. And I'll never forget you and I, and it was in a phone call. And you may not even remember this phone call, but I'll never forget this phone call saying, you saying to me, well, why don't we just go buy them? And I, I don't think we were on a Zoom call, but if we were on a Zoom call, I would have <laughs> just stared at you for, yeah. you know, for an awkward amount of time, right? And and he said, well, let's, look, why not? You know, let's, they're, they're, we're growing faster than they are. Yeah, they're bigger than us, but we can do this. But it was because we were ready that I was able to then pick up a, pick up the phone, call a private equity friend of mine in the Bay Area and say, we got this crazy idea. Here's what we're looking to do. And he said, okay, let's go do it. And, but it was only because we were ready for something like that, because that, that was the mindset. Otherwise we would have never been able to pull it off. Yeah. It would have been derailed. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Completely. We we would have spent six months trying to prepare ourselves to just go do it. Instead, we were able to go do it in six days or literally close. It it would have been too late too. You wouldn't have had that time on. No, no, not at all. Not at all. So we're running out of time here, but I do uh, I do need to ask you because this this is part of the founder's journey that uh, I think is so fascinating, right? And, and the and the and the the mindset of a founder, you see a problem, you go out and fix the problem, except you say to most founders, hey, let's go out and fix politics. And I mean, I don't know. I I I think it's uh, it's it's a bridge too far for most, but it wasn't for you. Talk, you got to tell the story. What what made you want to go? You're not you're not a politician by any stretch. You're very nonpartisan. Yeah. But you decided to go try to change New York State politics, which is something that is a. <laughs> well, if you read well, any of the, the news. <laughs> It's like most things. It, it began with small steps. So maybe the first step was that um, I decided to run as an independent candidate for U.S. Congress in 2016. And then over the course of that journey, I began to learn things that as a voter, I never really understood. There is a lot more complexity about how does someone even run for office and why is it are the choices we as voters get to make. Why do it always seem like we're picking the lesser of two evils instead of these are great candidates I have to think hard about and I really want to line up behind. I mean, there are some, obviously there are some exceptions to that, but mm-hmm. too often times we feel- Not too many. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have good <laughs> enough candidates to pick from. All right? Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. So, so, and one of the reasons I ran as an independent was because I was sick of the bad choices we were um, getting and I wanted to understand the process and you can't learn just by reading a book. So I launched into this effort that from the beginning, people said that's impossible. No one's been elected as an independent to Congress since Bernie Sanders in 1980 or whatever. And, you know, and I'm crazy. What do entrepreneurs do? We, you know, we, we try to do things that people, other people say are not practical. And, um, that like gave me the exposure. Always. That gave me the exposure, including to learning in New York State. We have this unique thing called fusion voting, which allows a single candidate can list on more than one line of the ballot, and then the voter has to choose. For example, in New York State, maybe they are running as a all candidates are running as a major party candidate, but they can also co-list on a minor party line, like the Conservative Party if they're the far right, 
or the Working Families Party if they're on the left, all right? And so we used to have, by the way, nine parties in the state of New York. Now we only have four, but that's another story. And so we decided, uh, uh, since people that came and supported my effort to run for Congress and um, decided at the end when I did not win, which is another interesting story in itself on what happened there, but we decided as long as they stayed on, we would continue this journey to create a minor party. So you might say, what was the ambition? Is recognizing that in New York State, minor parties have influence. And I can say that without a doubt it works because in the current New York State gubernatorial election cycle, which we're in here in 22, and that's how a minor party actually becomes a party. So today we're just an independent body, a political organization, but we seek to have a minor party line. How do we get that? by running a candidate for governor on our line. So we've actually interviewed six of the gubernatorial candidates for the governor of New York, who came to us seeking our endorsement. Five of those six candidates who came to us then publicly spoke out in favor of the reforms that we are seeking, such as we want an open primary because there's three and a half million voters in the state of New York that can't even vote in a primary because we're a closed primary state, one of only nine in the entire country. And as a result, getting candidates to speak out is changing the discourse. And now we actually have it in the public view that New York state is a laggard in reform. We think we're a progressive state, we're not. It's like we're a laggard and it's now in, in the open and we're driving change. So yes, Entrepreneurs do crazy things. We see this gap between current reality and this crazy idea of what we think it could be. And then we're crazy enough to think we can do something about it. All right. So uniteny.org for any of you that are interested. And uh, we're part of a larger national or affiliated with Unite America who embraces the goals of democracy reform. So if you're sick of the bad choices you have as candidates, I encourage you to visit us and uh, check it out. That's uh, it's such a great story. And it's such a uh, it's it's one that um, I think of all the entrepreneurial journeys you've been on and the founder journeys you've been on. I think this one might be the might be the craziest, Martin. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> without a doubt, there are people saying I'm a lunatic. <laughs> no, I think it's good though. At least Martin's doing it. Absolutely, look, <laughs> someone's it, doing. It. Well, it is. Who else is. would be good it's, enough to do that? Pull that all, off. I, look, we all sit around and complain. Martin and I, you know, Martin and I had had dinner not too long ago. We were we were talking about a, a, a number of our of our mutual friends, um, who you know, it's become in vogue. I think, and on some level, that. You know, you 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 reach a certain point in your in your entrepreneurial career, and now you know we're seeing friends like talk about going out and starting countries or moving out of the country and doing you know yeah. doing things like that. And, and I know we have a lot of listeners who are not in the U.S., but if you are in the U.S., you know they that you know and Martin and, and the thing I I just have so much respect for is Martin saying don't you don't you don't need to do that. You can actually get involved and change the system yeah. right here without having to go out and you know start your own country in the middle of, you know, and I think it comes back to if, if you're an employee and and I'm not knocking employees, because I've been one, if you're an employee all your life, you don't feel 
what happens in your local government as much as when you own a business. You start to really feel it and then it affects you. And, and as anyone that's going to be a founder, a new founders, as you do it, you start to really feel you know, the effect of your government around you for whatever you do. And so this is really kind of telling Martin's story, you know, but it's part of probably why he's doing this. Yeah, because I I had a lot of regulatory exposure over the course of my career with Trinet as well, a lot. Even in the beginning. Deeply aware aware of that. But it's a reminder that you don't have to start things to do this because there are movements that are already underway. Yep, And helping those that are doing the right thing, you can be part of it, even if it's a financial contribution, but most importantly, the time, because the help that all these organizations, Unite New York included, needs is people willing to devote some time. All right. There's a lot that can be done. Stay tuned. It's going to be a very interesting election cycle in the state of New York. <laughs> as a as a former New York state resident who now lives in Colorado, which is which is quite possibly one of the most boring states in the country in terms of politics. It's always entertaining to watch New York's politics still. While we're <laughs> um, Martin, this has been, uh, this has been such a, such a, a privilege and, um, and great honor to have you on here today. And, um, you know, we knew this was going to be a fun conversation and it certainly lived up to every bit of it. And, you know, I just hope that, uh, I hope that every founder that's out there gets a chance to listen to this because the, um, you know, the, the wisdom that you can, uh, that you can deliver is, uh, is second to none for somebody, whether starting their journey or on the journey. So, um, so thanks so much for, uh, for being here with us today. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Good speaking with both you guys and I'm looking forward to more contact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Martin. All right, Martin. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you next edition of the Founders Journey podcast.